Hear the word of the Lord from Luke chapter 7. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he who, of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is at the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and, all, and, <clears throat> and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has, has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Peace be with you. Good morning, Sojourn. My name is Paul Ramsey. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, welcome. Uh, we're glad that you're here. It's an honor and a joy to be preaching God's word for us this morning from Luke chapter seven. Today is the third Sunday in Advent, uh, which is the season each year that begins the Christian calendar with a time of waiting time of preparation, time of yearning for the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, whose birth we celebrate on Christmas. Advent is a season of waiting, and much like how the turn of the new year invites us, uh, gives us an opportunity to reflect and refocus on what is important in the year to come, Advent presents us with an invitation to stop and to look around and to consider where and how we need God to move in our lives and in the world around us. As I said last week, we need Advent this year, I think, as much as we ever have. Advent is about waiting in the darkness for the light to come. And in so many ways, Sojourn, we are a people waiting in darkness for the light to come. We're waiting for the light of Christ to shine afresh into our hearts, into our families, into our church, into the world around us. 
I'd be lying to you uh, if I told you that I was ready personally for Advent this year. I think about John the Baptist coming into the world and crowds of people going out to him saying, yes, we've been waiting for a prophet. Let's go and hear what he has to say. Let's go to the wilderness. And then these people hear about John, they go straight out to the wilderness to engage with John and his ministry. If you take me from where I've been personally, just mentally, emotionally, and put me back in that time and place, I feel like at best, I probably would have been one of the very last people to go out to the wilderness, if at all. My head down in my work, moving from crisis to crisis, at risk of missing the opportunity to see this turning of the ages. That's where I've been this year. And so when Advent came and it presents me with, once again this year, an invitation to the wilderness to pause, to wait, to be expectant for the Lord to move, I wasn't ready for it. And still here in this third Sunday of Advent, I feel like I'm trying personally to hear God's invitation to come to the wilderness and to meet with him in a special way. The fact that I'm in Christian ministry is particularly humbling to acknowledge that out loud. Advent has for my whole Christian life been probably my favorite Christian season of the whole year, even more than Easter. And I feel like this year I'm still trying to slow down and engage with it more than halfway through. But as I realize this, I'm also mindful of, of the fact that in most of the stories that I've heard from other people and in my own life experience, invitations to the wilderness seldom come at opportune times. Earlier this year, a close pastor friend of mine uh, for whom church planting has been a slog felt finally, finally, by God's grace, like things were coming together, the church the engine of the church was beginning to fire on all cylinders. Things were coming together. And right at that moment, his own mind and body were slowly coming apart and he was nearing nervous breakdown. Right when everything seemed like it was coming together and he could finally take a deep breath, he left on a, a period of a few weeks of medical leave to deal with his own heart, mind, and soul. A few weeks ago, I received a phone call that Sarah Henson one of our covenant members at Sojourn Heights passed away suddenly at the age of 35. And I had the honor and the heavy task of giving my first ever funeral sermon. Just this week, a pastor friend of mine who I'm pretty sure is younger than me brought his wife to the hospital with a headache only to find an advanced stage brain tumor. Whether or not this seems like an opportune time for you or for me to engage in the quiet, the waiting, the yearning, the, the yearning and the journey of Advent this year, my prayer for my own mind and soul is my prayer for our whole church, that God would take whatever we're doing, maybe especially if we think that whatever it is is too important to step back from and cause it to fade, even if just a little bit, and that he would do that in order to allow us to slow down, perhaps even force us to slow down, to prepare him room, as we often say, to make space for him to move, to speak to us, to shine light in the darkness, to make space for us to meet with him, our God and Savior, so that we can come to see Jesus for who he is, for what he's done for us, for what he's doing even today, just a little bit clearer this year than we did last year. We just celebrated Thanksgiving. When I was growing up uh, in my family, we never watched TV really until high school. And then even, even then, even in high school, we only watched TV on the holidays. 
I remember every Thanksgiving on one of the channels, can't remember which channel it was, they did a James Bond marathon um, every Thanksgiving. They just did one movie after another, James Bond. Uh, and I love James Bond movies. Um, when I think about what has made the 007 James Bond franchise so successful, it really is that it's just another, I would say, excellent variation on a theme that we're all familiar with and love. There's bad guys doing bad things. And you come to realize that someone should do something about it. And right when you realize that, there's this good guy who may be a bit rough around the edges, but unassailably, through specialized and unbelievably sometimes unrealistic skill, gets stuff done. That's James Bond. Whichever movie we're talking about, he walks into some briefing room, gets brought up to speed on some terrible situation, and despite doubters, even among the good guys, he gets to work, gets the job done, and ends the movie relaxing on some yacht, on some beautiful body of water somewhere at sunset. We love stories like this. We love stories about a hero who can step into a bad situation and get things done, take control, bringing about peace and justice. We like a hero who is fully in control and who always wins. Last week, we looked at the ministry of John the Baptist, at his ministry of preparation in the wilderness. The whole purpose of John's baptism in the, ministry, uh, in the wilderness was that it was a baptism of repentance to prepare the way for the coming Messiah, the coming of the light into the world, who would bring about the fulfillment of God's plan, his promises, of his prophecies, his prophesied restoration, his promised salvation. Now though, John is in prison. When we come to Luke chapter seven, John is in prison and He's been imprisoned on account of his ministry and in particular because he spoke in line with God's law against King Herod at the time and an illicit marriage that King Herod had with his brother's wife. And so John is in prison and he's been hearing about all of these wonderful messianic things that Jesus has been doing. And so he sends Jesus messengers to ask him, are you the good guy who's coming to get at all the bad guys? Are you the one? And while the answer is yes, the way that Jesus is going to do it doesn't exactly fit the picture that John has in his mind. Doesn't exactly fit the picture of James Bond stepping in to fix the situation immediately. So here's my plan for this morning. I want us to look together at three things. First, we're gonna look at a renewal that doesn't look the way that it was expected to look. Second, we're gonna look at the fact that this renewal is actually greater than it was expected to be. And then third, we're gonna ask the question of how we are going to respond to the renewal that God has to offer. And then we'll be done. In order to get to the first point, consider where we've been for just a moment. Uh, if you weren't with us last week, we were in Luke chapter three, which brought us to the ministry of John the Baptist in the wilderness. We looked at John the Baptist and his baptizing ministry in the wilderness. And so we were brought there ourselves into the wilderness to the place where there's nothing, where it seems that nothing really happens. And we were reminded that it's precisely there and really only there in the desert, in the place of quiet and waiting that renewal can truly begin. And if you remember towards the end of the passage last week, there was this verse, Luke chapter three, verse 15, that told us that the people were in expectation they had gone out to the wilderness, they'd been baptized in the baptism of repentance and they were in expectation. They were in expectation and they asked John whether he might be the Christ, 
we're ready for renewal. Are you the one? And John essentially said, no, but he who is coming, he who is mightier than I is coming. So rather than John being the fulfillment of their expectation, he was alongside them in waiting in expectation for the coming Messiah, who would be the one to bring about renewal, restoration, and judgment. And if you remember also in last week's passage, when the crowds asked John what they were to do with this teaching, with this posture of repentance, John made it clear that his invitation to them wasn't that they come and live in the wilderness with him, but instead to bring their sense of expectation along with a continued posture of repentance from sin and towards right living, they're supposed to bring this posture, this preparedness into their ordinary lives, their daily lives with them. He told them to share clothing and food with those in need. He said, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. John also said to tax collectors, collect no more than you're authorized to do. He said to soldiers, don't extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. So there is this great urgency to John's message of repentance because the one who is mightier than he is coming and he's going to bring restoration and along with that, he's gonna bring judgment. But then there's also this patience, the sense of patience and expectation in John's ministry that God is the one who will do the work of renewal in his timing. And so in the meantime, wait, be prepared and wait. The point was not for them to stay in the wilderness, but to be brought to the wilderness in order to be prepared so that when the work of renewal begins, they're ready for it. And so that's what happened. From their repentance in the wilderness, they went back to their lives and some time passed. And then we're told that Jesus comes Right after last week's passage, Jesus came to be baptized by John. The heavens were opened. The Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. In you, I'm well pleased. And then Jesus begins his public ministry. He begins preaching and healing and doing other miraculous works. The Messiah has arrived. But for many people, their lives hadn't changed much. There are some who are very close to Jesus who are learning from him. They're beginning to understand, but for many, Jesus' arrival is somewhat different from what they were hoping the ministry of the Messiah would have looked like in their lives. And so this brings us to point one. This is not the, re not the renewal we expected. A prime example of someone whose life looks somewhat different from what they were expecting after the arrival of the Messiah is, of course, John the Baptist. He's in prison. He'd been in prison for speaking against Herod's wife. And he knows that one of the things the Messiah is going to do is bring freedom to the captives, to bring those who are in prison out of prison. Meanwhile, Jesus has been doing a lot of miracles. Coming to our passage for this morning, we're in Luke chapter seven, verse 18 is where we begin. And Jesus has just before this worked two particularly spectacular miracles. He has healed a centurion's son from afar so he did a healing, not even in the presence of the person he healed. And then the second particularly miraculous miracle, to be redundant, particularly notable miracle uh, that Jesus performed was to raise a dead man to life. And so John, noting that he's still in prison, decides to ask Jesus what's going on. Chapter seven, verse 18 says, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. All these things would be these two miracles as well as probably a number of other miracles that Jesus had performed. And John, verse 19, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Verse 20, 
When the men had come to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? So there's a lot that, G- that John is asking in this question. His language is laden with meaning. Luke reminds his readers in verse 21 of what would have been common expectations for the Messiah. It says, in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. You can hear Luke goading in his readers this remembrance that this was talking about the Messiah. Jesus's ministry is the ministry of the Messiah. It would be kind of like playing a game of name that holiday together with fireworks being the clue. And if you're still not getting it, I might say something like the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof to the night that our flag was still there. Of course, that's words from the national anthem for the United States of America, in case you didn't catch that. And you might finally say, oh, the 4th of July. That's the holiday we're trying to guess. If we look back at the Old Testament for what the one, you know, the, the, the one who is to come was going to do, the prophet of Isaiah had given some very descriptive language that would have been very quickly uh, remembered in the minds of uh, John's, excuse me, of, of John's hearers here, of Luke's readers. There's two particular passages, Isaiah chapter 35 and Isaiah chapter 61. Listen to a couple of verses from Isaiah chapter 35. It says, behold, your God will come with vengeance with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped, excuse me, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. So you hear there in Isaiah chapter 35, the promise of the healing that is going to come with the ministry of the Messiah. And then Isaiah chapter 61, just a couple of verses there says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort, to comfort all who mourn. So you're there, Isaiah chapter 61, not just healing, but this Messiah is gonna bring good news to the poor. He's going to bring comfort to those who mourn. And he's also going to bring freedom to those who are in captivity. And of course, that last bit there in Isaiah 61 is most likely the bit that John the Baptist had in mind when he asked, are you the one who is to come? Right, liberty to the captives. Isaiah 35 was clearly there in Jesus's ministry. The eyes of the blind opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame man shall leap like a deer. Of course, Jesus was healing people all over the place. But Isaiah 61 wasn't fully there. Good news was being brought to the poor. The brokenhearted were, the comfort, the, the mourning were being comforted. The brokenhearted were having their hearts bound up, but the prison doors had yet to be opened. And so John asks from prison, are you the one who's gonna do this? And let's look at Jesus's response for a moment. And in particular, the part that Jesus leaves out. Look at verse 22, Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And then he stops. In verse 23, as if he's looking John the Baptist right in the eyes, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. 
See, all of these other things are happening. Sick people are being healed. Dead are being raised. In Jesus's public, just as, as a side note, in Jesus's public ministry, the raising of the dead is always clearly tied to comforting those who mourn. Whenever Jesus raises someone from death, we are told who in their life is mourning. When Lazarus dies, Jesus enters into a community that is mourning and he weeps with this mourning community before he raises Lazarus from the dead. Another example is the death of a young girl and we're introduced to her father by name, Jairus, who was a, a, a governing authority in Rome. And then the man Jesus raises just before this passage in Luke chapter seven is a widow's son we're told. A widow is someone who has already mourned the loss of her husband, and she's now mourning the loss of her son. And Jesus draws near to her. If you have your Bible open, you can see Jesus says to her, do not weep. And then he raises the son from the dead. So Jesus, through raising the dead to life, is comforting those who mourn. But back to Jesus's response, look at verse 22. Sick people are healed. That's Isaiah 35. The prophetic context is being fulfilled in the present. And then Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Check. This happened in front of John at Jesus' baptism. The spirit of the Lord came upon Jesus uh, to bind up the brokenhearted, check, the dead are being raised, to bring good news to the poor, check, Jesus says in verse 22, good news is being proclaimed to the poor. But then just before Jesus gets to proclaiming liberty to the captives, he stops and doesn't say that. And this silence would have, of course, been deafening to John the Baptist. Jesus doesn't say anything about setting captives free from prison. He doesn't say anything about judgment over the captors whatsoever, which Isaiah is full of words of judgment. And so the sense of Jesus's response to John is clear. If the messianic age is present, as is clear from the works that Jesus is doing, then so is the one at the center of the messianic age, the Messiah. Jesus is saying to John, yes, I'm doing all these messianic things. I am the Messiah. But his answer is nuanced. In the words of one commentator, Jesus is essentially saying, I have come, but not as the fiery reformer you expected. Jesus is clear that the program of the Messiah has begun, but that it will be a process. Judgment itself is a process. And while it may not look yet exactly like what John the Baptist, who is sitting in prison, is looking for, Jesus encourages John with this beatitude, this blessing. Verse 23, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And if we notice, actually here, judgment isn't fully absent from Jesus's response. When Jesus says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me, that wording, one who is not offended by me, brings judgment into view. Also from Isaiah, who said in chapter eight, verse 14, he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. So there Isaiah gives this image of the one who is to come who will be both a sanctuary to some and a stone of offense, a stumbling block to others. John the Baptist had talked back in chapter three, which is our, again, our passage from last week about the coming Messiah having his ax laid at the foot of the tree. It's an image of judgment. His winnowing fork is in his hand John the Baptist was clear that the ministry of the Messiah would be one of judgment, of sorting the good from the bad. And with this in mind, Jesus ends his response to John, which he knows is not exactly what John is looking for, with a word of encouragement. Jesus doesn't leave judgment fully out of the picture. He says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. 
John has had to ask about Jesus's ministry if he is the one, because John is confused. John was ready for judgment and Jesus's messianic style is confusing for John specifically because of what John sees as the absence of judgment. But into this apparent absence, John speaks, excuse me, Jesus speaks clearly. He says, John, don't be offended by me. And this is a word of division. To some, Jesus will be a sanctuary and to others, he will be an offense. And so rather than rebuking John, as some people think this verse is doing, Jesus is actually encouraging John that judgment has already begun, just not in the way that John was expecting, or really not in the speed that John was expecting. Instead, judgment has arrived first in the form of a missionary concern. Jesus's focus right now is on bringing good news, and this good news itself brings judgment. Those who respond to the good news that Jesus came to preach in faith will receive blessing. Those who respond to the good news that Jesus came to preach by rejecting it will not receive blessing. It's a picture of judgment. In other words, the first part of the ministry of the Messiah in the process of judgment was to preach the good news, which is to enact God's gracious patience toward his people. Jesus judges in his first coming by showing mercy. The first coming of the Messiah is the coming of mercy. His second coming is the one that will bring with it judgment for all those who reject his ministry of mercy. So while that's great, as you can imagine, this is not exactly what John was looking for, given his present circumstances. In sending his disciples to question Jesus, he was probably hoping that asking this question of Jesus would remind Jesus to do something that he was forgetting to do. Hey, remember how the Messiah is supposed to free the captives? And of course, it's not wrong for John to be hoping to be released from prison, right? His hope to be set free from prison was a biblical hope. The Bible told him to look forward to a day when the captives will be set free. In talking about the ministry of the Messiah, the scriptures include clear promises along these lines. But in fact, what John doesn't see is that Jesus is doing just that. Jesus's ministry isn't to do everything except set the captives free. Instead, in a real sense, the whole overarching purpose of Jesus's ministry is focused on a much richer experience of what it means to be set free. Rather than, in other words, rather than embarking on a mission to set John free from his immediate position, his immediate circumstance in being in King Herod's prison, Jesus is on a mission to set John and everyone else free from their eternal position in prison under sin. You see, and this is point two, John's expectation wasn't too great. It wasn't too much for Jesus. It was actually so colored by his immediate position that it was too small. John's hope to be set free from prison wasn't too much for Jesus to do. It was too small. Jesus's plan of setting John free was much greater than John could ever have possibly imagined. I've asked God questions like this personally many times. God, you are a God of healing. Why hasn't this person or why haven't I been healed of this condition? God, you are a God of restoration. Why couldn't this situation have worked together for restoration or reconciliation? 
God, you are a God of justice. You've had 2000 years since the life, death and resurrection of Jesus to bring justice to bear on earth, but I'm looking around and where is the justice? Where is the justice that you promised? The list goes on. And the truth is God is the God of all of those things. All of those things will ultimately happen but they will happen in a much grander sense than you and I could ever possibly imagine on our own. God's ways are higher than ours. His plans are better than ours. And listen, I'm not being trite here. We're not talking about minor things. John is in prison and rather than getting out, he's going to get killed. If God doesn't heal the cancer they just found in my friend's wife's brain, she's going to die young. If God doesn't address injustice in the world, real people will be hurt and carry the pain from that hurt for the rest of their lives. If you've been around Christians for long, you've probably met the person who is far too quick to pull the God card in times of pain or suffering in times of unrealized hopes and expectations. The person who jumps right in to talk about how good God is and how all things are gonna eventually work together for good and how great it's all gonna be in the end. You probably know a person or two like this. It takes real wisdom and love to sit with someone and mourn with them appropriately, pointing them to the gospel at the right time and in the right way. See, Jesus's answer to John here was not what John expected to hear but it was more glorious than John could ever have expected. Yes, John, I am the one. You're seeing the signs correctly, but I'm not here as the fiery reformer just yet. And this is good news because I have come now to bring mercy and blessed is the one who's not offended by the way that I'm doing things. The part that Jesus doesn't say explicitly here to John is that rather than setting John free from prison, if you know the story, Jesus is actually preparing to join John in prison. In this sense, while this isn't specified in the text, Jesus' response to John is almost wistful. John asks, are you going to get me out? And Jesus essentially says, I'm actually coming there. You see, John is not the only one who is captive. The prison door opening words of Isaiah aren't simply addressed to those who are behind bars in a physical sense. They are addressed to every human being who has ever lived, who is behind the bars of spiritual prison, of sin and death with no hope of escape on our own. Indeed, the great work of setting the captives free involved Jesus being taken captive himself so that he could take our place behind bars and fall under the judgment that we deserve on account of our sins so that we could truly be set free. You see, in God's providence, we can be assured that all things, even the most disappointing of unmet expectations and hopes, all things work together for good. And sometimes we get to see how and why things happen. Sometimes we get to understand those things in this life and sometimes we don't. John here is an example of the latter. Shortly after this, John dies before seeing the outcome of this in his own life. 
He's killed by this malicious plot on the part of Herod's wife. He doesn't get to see the finished work of salvation that Jesus secures through his death and resurrection. And while that's sad, and while I can only imagine what was going through John's mind the moment before his head was removed from his shoulders, I can't wait to meet John in heaven and ask him what his perspective is now. John, Jesus tells us, in, is the greatest of the prophets of old. And the whole middle section of our passage for this morning tells us Jesus' view of John. Once John's messengers had gone, Jesus looks around and speaks to the crowds concerning John. Let me read Jesus' words and talk about them for just a moment. Starting partway through verse 24. Jesus says, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So Jesus speaks of John's greatness and about John's, you know, alongside his greatness, he also speaks of John's humble stature compared with the glory that's about to be revealed for those in the kingdom of God. John is in prison. And in the same way that John is asking Jesus for some clarification concerning his ministry, Jesus looks around at the crowds and sees that they have the same question too. They are in need of encouragement. And so Jesus looks at them and says, don't be surprised that John the Baptist is in prison. In fact, don't be disheartened about where John is right now. What drew you to the desert? Jesus asks it wasn't the reeds. You weren't just looking for some wilderness scenery. It wasn't comfortable and powerful men in fancy clothes or else you would have gone to the palace. It was a prophet. John was a prophet of God. You went out to him for his message and you received it. The outcome of his life is gonna look a lot like the outcome of the lives of the other prophets. Don't be surprised. And then Jesus quotes the same Malachi passage that we looked at last week, the prophet Malachi the one who's, who prophesied that this one would come to prepare the way of the Lord. And Jesus quotes that as if to say, John the Baptist, John's ministry is nearing completion. He has fulfilled his plan. He's fulfilled his role in God's plan of salvation. And in doing so, John has established himself as the greatest person who has ever lived up until now. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Talks about the unparalleled greatness of John the Baptist and then follows it by talking about how the kingdom of God, which, is, which John is a forerunner to, and which Jesus is inaugurating before their very eyes is even greater than John. There are other prophecies throughout the Old Testament that are being fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus. The great marker of the new covenant um, promised by Isaiah and Joel and Jeremiah is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which John didn't experience in fullness and which was going to come to all in the kingdom of God on the day of Pentecost after Jesus's resurrection and ascension. Every single person, in other words, Jesus is saying, every single person in the new covenant cleansed by the sacrificial blood of Jesus and filled with the spirit of God enjoys greater privilege and stature than every single person in the old. Greater than John, greater than Elijah, greater than David or Solomon or even Moses. And what is Jesus doing in talking about John like this? Talking about the greatness of John. 
he's responded to John with words of encouragement, as if to say, John, though you don't see exactly what you thought you would be seeing, I am the one you've been waiting for, and what I'm doing is far greater than you could ever have imagined. Jesus has also turned to the crowds with words of encouragement. Though you don't see exactly what you thought you would be seeing, don't be disheartened. John was imprisoned, but don't be mistaken. He is greater than anyone who's come before him. And I probably, Jesus is saying, don't look like the conquering king you were expecting, but don't be mistaken. What I'm preparing to do is far greater than you could possibly have imagined with the offer that each one of you, if you come to me in faith, will become even greater than John. So what is Jesus doing? He's doing what he came to do. He's speaking what is true. He's preaching to the crowds. And he's bringing his hearers to a point of response. This brings us to point three. How do we respond to the ministry of John and of Jesus? Jesus talks to the crowds about John in a way that tells them that their response to John will ultimately determine their response to him which will in turn determine the outcome of their life. In verses 29 and 30, Luke gives this brief brief explanation of the contrast between the two different responses that he's seeing. Between the people and the tax collectors on one hand and the Pharisees and the lawyers on the other hand. Verse 29, when all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers or the scribes rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. So the main difference that we're pointed to here is that one group, the people and the tax collectors had submitted to John's baptism of repentance and the other group, Pharisees and the lawyers didn't. And Luke interprets this for us. The people who submitted to John's baptism of repentance were submitting to the purpose of God for them. When it says they declared God just, that's just another way of saying they approved of God's words. They agreed with God that they needed to repent in order to, get, uh, to be forgiven and be saved. The people who didn't submit to this baptism didn't. They rejected the purpose of God. They rejected repentance. God's way of salvation is repentance for the sake of forgiveness And by rejecting baptism, the Pharisees and the lawyers chose not to accept their need for repentance and forgiveness. And the irony here is clear. The Pharisees and the lawyers, the scribes, they were Jews of high status in religion. Their lives were devoted to interpreting the Torah, the law, which was the plan and purpose of God for his people. These leaders were supposed to know what the purpose of God was. They'd gone through significant training, years of studying and being vetted as students, becoming scholars in training, and then being named full scholars and authorized to interpret the law for God's people, to say, to disclose, this is what the wisdom of God is. This is what the plan of God is. And they missed it. The irony is clear. In overcomplicating the teachings of God and how it applied to their lives, in overcomplicating the systematic way through which atonement was made for this thing or that thing and the way that you truly worship God in this sense and that sense and what it truly means to be forgiven in these seven different ways. They had teachings about all of these things and they missed the big picture. Simply, you need to repent completely. You need to be forgiven by God. You cannot depend upon yourself for salvation. You see, in overcomplicating things, their faith was broken. 
They thought that in all their study, they were making themselves wise, but they had become like foolish children, prideful, judgmental, self-reliant. In the next few verses, Jesus moves on to talk about this generation by painting a picture of an immature, childish group of complaining children. Verse 31, Jesus says, to what then, he tells this parable, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? Verse 32, they are like children sitting in a marketplace and calling to one another, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine and you say he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. One commentator I was reading this week called this the parable of the brats. This generation, Jesus says, is like complaining children. Children calling to one another isn't an image of peaceful, oh, hey, sister, hey, brother. The image of calling to one another is grumbling and childish calling. It's, I told you the rules of the game and you're not playing it right. In the two offset lines of verse 32, Jesus isn't quoting scripture. That's not from anywhere in the Bible. It may have been a reference to a children's game that was known at the time that we've somehow lost track of, but we can think of it merely as a couple of parallel statements that Luke puts there for us that Jesus speaks in, in this parable. And Jesus uses this picture of complaining children as an example of this generation. This is a generation that is complaining that John and Jesus are not playing by their rules. The messengers of God aren't meeting our expectations and so they are the ones who are at fault. Like children who will play a game only if they can make the rules, the Pharisees and the lawyers, these leaders of God's people do not wish to enter the game with John and Jesus unless it's played according to their rules. The first line of verse 32, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. That's them complaining about John. John was too much of a downer for them. They wanted him to dance and laugh, but he wouldn't do it. He lived a restrictive life in the wilderness, talked in clear, seemingly harsh words about repentance, and so they reject him. Verse 33, John the Baptist came eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. As one commentator put it, John's lifestyle was too radical for those uncomfortable with his message, and so they rationalized their rejection of him by claiming that he was unbalanced and possessed. It's a fallacy. It's an ad hominem fallacy for those of you who have taken logic. But they did whatever they could to rationalize their rejection of him. Then they go and do the opposite thing. Second line of verse 32, we sang a dirge and you did not weep. That's them complaining about Jesus. A dirge is a sad song. Jesus wasn't as upright and proper and somber as they wanted him to be. He seemed always to be eating and drinking and feasting. And he was doing it always seemingly with sinners. We don't like it, Jesus. Those who rejected him complained that he lived too loosely and associated with the wrong people. They just, in other words, they were like children who couldn't be pleased. Whether God's messenger came in asceticism in the wilderness or in associating openly with people in the villages, they rejected them. He's too serious. He's not serious enough. He's too rigid. He's not rigid enough. You're not playing the game the way that I want you to play it. They sang whatever tune they could to defend their rejection of John and their rejection of Jesus. And the issue here is clear. Jesus is looking at the crowds. He's looking at this generation. 
and saying, beware the desire to dictate to rather than listen to the messengers of God. This complaining generation is contrasted with wisdom's children. Verse 35, yet wisdom, so these children who are foolish are contrasted with children who are wise. Wisdom is justified by all her children. Those who justified God, who agreed with God by accepting his message and repenting and being baptized in the wilderness, they are the children, the product of God's gracious work in bringing them into his wisdom and his counsel and his plan. While the ministries of John and Jesus are misunderstood and subject to slander by the Pharisees and scribes, the common people and the tax collectors are humbled in repentance and are able to recognize what is going on. God is here and he's brought salvation through repentance and faith. And so the big question for us this morning that this text brings us to is this. Which one are you? Which one am I? Which of these two groups do we find ourselves in? Are we grumbling and complaining children who can't be pleased because God is not playing by our rules? Or are we fed up with our own attempts to pull ourselves together, to live our lives the way that we want to live them such that we can come to Jesus in faith and receive whatever he has to offer us. God has demonstrated for us that the way to renewal starts in the wilderness with repentance. It brings us to places where our understanding of what we think things should be or how we want things to be ourselves are tested and purified and pruned in ways that can be painful. God's plan is nothing short, as Jesus says elsewhere, of death to self. The Apostle Paul describes it as following Jesus is like death of an old man and coming alive in Christ. The truth is that this new life is more glorious and more peace-filled and more joyful than anything that you could have possibly imagined or designed or procured on your own. And the question is, is this acceptable to you? This is the plan that Jesus came to tell you from God, for you, for us, for the world. Is this acceptable to us or would we rather have it our own way? To circle back to John's expectation of judgment back in Luke chapter three, the winnowing fork is in Jesus's hands. That image is of a farmer sifting wheat from chaff, the good from the bad. And in Jesus's ministry, the blades of that winnowing fork are his words. The word of God that divides between bone and marrow Are the blind continuing to stumble in darkness or are they regaining sight and responding to Jesus in faith? Jesus's winnowing fork is a fork of healing and of mercy. And what determines the difference between a piece of wheat and a strand of chaff isn't a list of good works. It isn't a, your own ability to fix yourself up. It isn't something that you can do to justify yourself before God. The difference between wheat and chaff is merely a response. Will you respond with repentance or will you respond with criticism? M 
the only response we need is to accept the fact that we cannot save ourselves, we cannot fix ourselves, we cannot obtain the renewal that we so long for in our own strength in a way that brings us to a point of asking God to do that for us. So the way of Jesus may not look how you want it to look. As John the Baptist suffered, so too Jesus the Messiah secured our salvation through suffering and through the wilderness. The invitation to follow Jesus is an invitation to the wilderness. And as we looked at last week, it's a series really of wilderness experiences. This way, to be honest, is not a way that any of us will choose on our own. Deep down, we really think that we can go it alone, that we can do things on our own, that if this is the kind of life that God came to offer, I want no part of it and I'd rather do it myself. But by God's grace, he will bring us to the end of ourselves. My prayer is regularly that God will continue to do this for me and that he will do this for each of you that he will bring you to the end of yourself, to a place where you can be so fed up with life the way you know it, that you would come to him with no other option, no better option than to come to him. Because listen, when you come to him, it will be far better than you could ever imagine. And why? This is the last thing. Why is it so much better than you could possibly imagine? Because it's personal. Because it's about a person. It's about God himself. The life of faith isn't merely a life of finding answers to hard questions. Because, and this is good because often the life of faith doesn't yield clean answers to life's hard questions. The question of how we will respond to Jesus for who he is, is a question that gets beneath theological camps. It gets beneath ideology. It gets beneath platitudes. You see at the heart of our passage is the question that John asks Jesus. John doesn't ask Jesus if he's right. Jesus, am I right? John doesn't ask Jesus why he's still in prison. John doesn't even ask Jesus to take him out of prison. He simply asks, verse 19, are you the one? Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we wait for another? We all have our theological convictions. Even if you're not a believer, that is in and of itself a theological conviction. We all have our theological convictions. I do, you do, you do, we do as a church here at Sojourn. And while those are good, theological convictions, the minutia of our faith can be good to, and important to study and consider. Sometimes if we choose to major on those theological distinctives and on those minutia, we run the risk of complicating our understanding of faith to the point that we miss that the whole point of the Christian faith is about relationship with a person. For example, your ultimate comfort in the face of injustice isn't merely that God as some outside controlling party will some somehow have his way in the end. That is not your ultimate comfort in the face of injustice. Your ultimate comfort is that God is with you right now sympathizing with your anger and with your hurt and with your pain. Your ultimate comfort in suffering isn't merely that God as some outside controlling party will use it somehow. Your ultimate comfort is that God is with you in the middle of your suffering, feeling it with you in every way, the way that you do, comforting you, healing you. 
you see the glorious truth of the gospel, the central reality of Advent is God with us. God with us. You don't have to get out of where you are to see and know the grace and peace and joy of God. In fact, if you find yourself wanting to be in some fantasy realm where everything is good and comfortable and wonderful, I want you to know right now that you are wanting to be somewhere where God is not because God is not the God of your imagination. He is the God of the real world. He's here in the context of the real world, in the context of your real life, waiting for you to come to him, waiting for you to prepare him room. In Psalm 23, we're, talked to, we're told about the valley of the shadow of death. And the picture we're given is not of a shepherd that stays out and calls us to come out of the valley to where he is. We're given the picture of a God who draws near and prepares a table in the presence of our enemies and invites us to sit and share a meal with him in the bottom of the valley. So consider this passage an invitation to struggle. Who is Jesus? John the Baptist is a man who is sensitive to God and yet struggles to understand who Jesus is. John doesn't reject Jesus. He doesn't disbelieve in Jesus. He's only showing us what it looks like to make great effort to understand who Jesus is. Jesus, are you the one? And Jesus invites us, just like he invites John to come and see, to seek and we will find, to knock and the door will be opened. And so in this Advent season, wherever you are, whether this is a high point or a low point, whether you feel like you're in the village at the top of your game, in the wilderness just waiting for a sign. Come to him. Prepare him room. Ask him, are you the one? And let him answer for you. I can't give you that answer with my words. Please don't try to think of your own answer with your own mind. Let him speak for himself and speak the words that, the only words that can give you life. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful for this passage and this invitation that you've given us to come to you. Lord, I pray that you would use these pictures, use this parable of the brats to teach us that at any given moment you are speaking to us what is true and waiting for us to respond. Help us to repent where we are tempted to be like spoiled children just grumbling at you. Give us a picture of your love for us that even as grumbling children, you are there inviting us to come to wisdom, to come to you where we can find grace and mercy and forgiveness and salvation. Lord, I pray that you would take whatever we're doing, whether we think it's too important to step back from or whether it's not. I pray that you would take whatever we are doing and cause it to fade, help us to slow down, to see you, to prepare you room in our hearts, in our families, in our communities. Help us to make space for you to move, make room for you to speak. Meet with us and show us who you are. Help us to come to you this Advent season for renewal, for joy, for peace, for love, for meaning, for all of the things that we want so badly and try to get for ourselves. Show us the grace of leading us to repentance and faith in you as the God of the real world rather than the God of our imaginations. 
We love you. We trust you. Please help us to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.